Like Jose said, I am Sean. I get to be on staff here and teach from time to time. Love being with you guys. I love uh, just all that goes on. We have an amazing group of teachers here. We get uh, Taylor Christensen and we got Jose and these guys speak at some incredibly quick speed and now you get me for a change of pace. Like I'm the change up, the guy that comes in, you know, just to slow things down. So I'm going to talk a little slower than you used to hear in the last few weeks. Hope you're okay with that. Just settle in. We're going to continue on in this series. Does anybody have a favorite song? Do you have a favorite song that you that you really like? And let's just be, let's just be non-churchy for a second. It doesn't have to even be a, a worship song. Maybe it's something different, like a favorite song. When it comes on the radio, you like it, you kind of crank it up. That that even just the fact that I said radio probably just dated me by a whole bunch, right? <laughs> but it comes on whatever you listen to music on. Well, I, I, so I like. I like this song by Tim McGraw called Live Like You Were Dying. Another song, it's one of my favorites, probably my favorite of all time. It comes on, and it's the story of, you know, Tim McGraw is talking to a friend of his who's diagnosed with cancer, only has a limited amount of time to live. And uh, that topic fascinates me. Like, what do people do with the short amount of time that they have left when they know they only have a little bit left? And uh, I think that's probably because of how I grew up and losing people when I was younger and watching them in the last days of their life and just the thought of, uh, the thought of that, what are we going to do at the end when we know the end is coming? Hopefully, we won't know. Hopefully, it'll just kind of surprise us and come out of nowhere, but it doesn't always happen that way, and it didn't happen that way for Jesus because he knew everything. He knew everything that was going to happen before it was going to happen. So we have been marching our way through the book of Mark this summer, and we are now at, at Mark chapter 11 and chapter 12, and the point of the song and the story is the fact that at this point, Jesus knows he has one week left. So to me, it's kind of interesting to read Mark 11 and 12 in light of the fact that he's got one week to go. What would you do if you had one week left? And while it's significant to know what Tim McGraw would do if he had a week left, it's probably even more important to know what Jesus, the most influential person in the history of the world, would do with the last week of his life. And that's what we get to find out in Mark 11 and 12. We've been leading up to this all the way through the book of Mark. Last week, Jose talked about chapter 9 and chapter 10 and uh, the powerful message that, uh, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Not really popular in American culture, not really popular in our sports world, but it's an incredibly significant message for us as believers. And it's summarized in that Mark 10, 45. Jose said that kind of summarizes the whole book of Mark where Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve, to, to give my life sacrificially as a ransom for many. That's the theme of the whole book. And that kind of leads into this final week of his life. We call it the Passion Week or Holy Week. Uh, passion is a Latin word with the same root as suffering. That's why it's called that. We start in Easter season. We would talk about Palm Sunday. This is where Mark chapter 11 is. It starts on Palm Sunday, and then a week goes by, and then Easter Sunday is next. And if you only come Sunday to Sunday, you see two really cool celebrations. But the fact of the matter is the six days in between, there's a lot of suffering, and there's a lot of learning, and there's a lot of teaching, and a lot of things that go on. And that's what we're going to get to cover in the next few weeks as we look at Mark 11 and 12 and 13 along the way. So let's just kind of dig in. I'm going to do a little bit of reading. So if you have your Bible, flip it open to Mark chapter 11. If you have it on your phone, that's great as well. It'll be up on the screen. But Mark chapter 11, starting right at the beginning, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. 
If anyone asks you why you are doing this, say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. We've been looking at a way of studying these scriptures as we kind of go through two chapters at a time. It's the OIA method, where you observe, and then you interpret, and then you apply it to your own life. That's what we're going to do today. You're going to kind of get a peek into how I study this stuff. It is not the perfect way. I don't even know if it's the best way, but it's it's kind of my way, and uh, not just my way. It's the way I do it based on what OIA says to do. So what do we observe here? Well, we observe that Jesus is about to come into this city, and uh, he sends his disciples out to get him a means of transportation. Think about this for a moment. Let's try to contextualize this for ourselves. If uh, about three years ago, we heard of a guy named John, John the Baptist, and he was out at the Guadalupe somewhere around New Braunfels, and he was baptizing people, all right? So he's out there at the horseshoe baptizing people. Tubes are floating by. People are kind of connecting together and hanging out and listening to what he has to say. If that's going on, and it's so exciting, and the teaching is so good that people start flocking their way to, to green over there to hear, you know, hear what's going on. And, and eventually Jesus winds himself up there as well. And he asks John to baptize him right there in the Guadalupe. He does, and then he hops out of there, and then God himself says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and all that's happening down there. And then for the next three years, Jesus is kind of hanging out around Canyon Lake, all right? So he's up on the north side, and he's teaching a little bit, and then he gets in the boat with his disciples, and he goes across Canyon Lake to the south side, what's over there, Sattler or whatever, where the McDonald's is and hangs out there and he's teaching all around Canyon Lake, right? And then all of a sudden, three years goes by and it's time. Some of us have gone to hear him. Some of us have just kind of waited and heard what the information when he came back. And now it's time he's going to come to Wimberley. It's kind of the, he's showing up here. I mean, how do you think he would get here? Like in your mind, what would you picture? Like put the scripture into context. Like I would think it'd be cool if he you know, he can walk on water, so maybe he'd have a boat that could kind of go through the shallow Blanco and just hover its way all the way up here right outside. That would be super cool. Or maybe he'd get one of those cool convertibles like in the parade, and he'd drive that, and we'd all throw, you know, we'd expect him to throw candy at us, and we'd, you know, however that works. But I don't know. But I wouldn't expect that he would stop by Lenny and Claudia's little ranch over there and pick up a donkey and and ride that in. Not what I would think was going to happen. What if he did? Man, that would be interesting. Why would he do it that way? I don't know. It brings us to the application point, though. That I, I, what is, would it be like if you're, you have a donkey, you're there in the town, it's a little young one, and nobody's ever ridden it before, and all of a sudden these guys show up, these yahoos, and they want to take the donkey. They say, well, the Lord needs it. Would you be willing to say, yeah, go for it, take it? And that's the first application question as you're reading through. Is like, okay, so for me, what if God shows up and he asked me for something of, that I possess. Like, am I willing to just say, yeah, sure, take it? That's the question that we've got to ask ourselves from this scripture. What would I say if Jesus asked me for something that I possess? Because this guy willingly gave it. Now, this is all a work in progress when you're teaching. I know lots of you have taught before. When I first put this slide together, it said, what would I say if Jesus asked me for something of mine? And then I went about a day pondering that, kind of rereading that, and I realized, you know what, honestly, it's, It's not mine anyway. Stuff isn't mine. It's God's stuff. He's letting me steward it. He's entrusted it to me. I'm watching over it. But just the fact that I consider it mine is probably a little presumptuous. It's his. So if he asks for it, he needs it. Now, I got to tell you, it would be weird if he showed up over there at 57 Augusta and sent two guys, and they're like, hey, man, we're from Sattler. 
the Lord needs your pickup truck. Do you mind if we take it? Be hard for me to be like, oh, sure. I didn't know the Lord needed it. You guys take it. Um, but that's what this guy does with his donkey. Gives it away. Are you willing to do that? Luke says, give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Are you willing to give of the things that have been entrusted to you for the sake of the Lord? And here's the cool thing. This little donkey had never been ridden before. He gives it away. It ends up coming back to him. At this point, it has been ridden, which increased the value, and it had been ridden by the Lord, which I think way increased the value of that thing. So we did a good thing by giving it away. It's the same for us, you guys. Are you willing to give your time when that phone call comes in and you don't want to answer it, but you know that person needs you? Are you willing to give your talents, whatever that gift is that you've been, are you willing to share that with people? Sometimes when you don't feel like it, sometimes when you don't have the energy, but you know that talent is needed somewhere. Are you willing to give your possessions to bless the people around you? That's what God's asking us as we look through Mark. We can keep on going. In uh, verse seven, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So he comes riding in. This is how kings in the past had come in. I don't think they were on a donkey. I think they were on a horse or an elephant or a much cooler animal. But David and Solomon had all entered this way, and the people had praised them this way when they came into town. And they thought, it's happening again. Our king is coming. He's going to overthrow Caesar and the Roman government. And now we're going to have this empire here on earth that we've been longing for. And that's why you got to remember all this stuff in context. Because back in Mark 10, 45, he said, no, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I didn't come to have an earthly kingdom. I didn't come to overthrow the Romans. I came to set up the kingdom of God. And the means by doing that require sacrifice totally different picture than what the crowd wanted and what they were hoping for as they came in. What about us? I mean, what are our hopes for God in our life? Do we sometimes have hopes and expectations of what he should do in our life that are maybe contrary to what his ultimate plan is for what's going on around us? I like the last sentence. It's just an aside, but worth noting. If you are a parent, any parents out there? Got some parents? This is an amazing strategy Jesus uses. Okay, there is a huge buildup these chief priests and elders of the temple have been waiting for this moment when Jesus shows up at their place because they know he's going to contradict and, and want to get rid of them, their job, and the way they've been doing things. And the very first time he comes into the temple, it says he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. He just walked in and looked around the temple. And then he turned around and walked out. That is a good parenting strategy. Sometimes you just need to walk into your kid's room and just look around, kind of have this look on your face, and then just walk out. And they'll be like, what? What did I do? What's wrong? Is it not clean enough? What's he feeling? What's he thinking? I don't know. Just leave him thinking that for a little bit. That's what Jesus does until the next morning. And then it really gets going. So we keep reading through here. The next morning, the next day, verse 12, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not in season for figs. 
Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. If you just stop right here, you're like, man, what's he got against the fig tree? What did it do? But it is just a metaphor for what's about to come. So we keep going. In verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. I like that. I actually like this part as a counselor because sometimes you hear people say anger is just a bad thing. It's a bad emotion. You shouldn't have it. Well, I love that Jesus gave us an example of anger because it's, it's not always bad. There is appropriate anger when it is controlled and in the right place. And trust me, Jesus' anger here was appropriate and it was controlled, but it was anger. And that's okay. It's okay to have that from time to time. Jesus does because he's frustrated with what's going on in the temple. He said, and as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then these chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. What's happening with this fig tree? Well, the fig tree is a metaphor for the temple itself. You got to understand that up to this point, the temple was the key to relationship with God. God's people had to go to the temple, and then once they got there, they had to sanctify themselves in a certain way. And once they did, they had to get these sacrifices, and they had to make these sacrifices to atone for their sin. And all of that was a way to enter into relationship with the Lord. And instead of the chief priests managing that the way they were supposed to, they started abusing it and trying to take extra money from people and trying to take advantage of people and trying to exploit their power and their intelligence. And Jesus is like, I'm done with that system. It is over. I am here to change it. You won't need the temple anymore. That fig tree wasn't doing what it needed to. It wasn't producing the right fruit. And so it's gone. The temple wasn't producing the fruit that God had intended to. So it's gone. Jesus is establishing a new order where you come through him to have relationship with the Lord. You don't have to go to a place. You don't have to go to a place in Israel. You don't have to go to a place in Wimberley. You don't have to go anywhere. He's there. And you can have a relationship with him. So what's the application for us? Well, it leads me to this second question. Is my life producing fruit? Is the fact that, uh, I like that Paul describes in Corinthians, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. He's saying the temple has moved from this place out there to right here. God is in you through the Holy Spirit. What are you doing? Are you taking care of it? Are you fertilizing? Are you watering? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you staying healthy? Are you feeding yourself healthy things through social media or TV? Are you eating and drinking the right things to have your body in a good place, your temple in a good place, so that you can produce the fruit that's required of you based on the blessing that he has given you? It's a good question because I don't want to end up like the fig tree. I don't think that God does that necessarily, curses people who aren't producing fruit. I know he doesn't just destroy somebody because they're not living up to his expectations, but I do want to produce fruit with the life that I've been given. I got to take care of myself. You have to take care of yourself in such a way that you can then produce the fruit that you were blessed to produce in relationship with him. Are you producing that fruit? 
All right, let's keep, keep working our way through. I know I'm reading a lot. We're going to keep digging in because there's just some really good stuff here. You skip down to verse 27, the authority of Jesus' question. Verse 27, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Now remember, these chief priests and elders and Pharisees and Sadducees, they're starting to get pretty worried about everything he's teaching. And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism... Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Verse 31, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, because they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet, they couldn't answer that way. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. You have to understand, these guys have been trying to trap Jesus for three years. Like they've been heading out there to Canyon Lake trying to throw traps at him, all different varieties, mental traps, physical traps, healing on a Sabbath, doing this. What, what do they say about this? They try it again. And in this case, he just flips it back on him. He just kind of spins it around and gives them a the discussion they've got to come up with. Because see, they didn't like John the Baptist's theory. John the Baptist was saying, well, you don't need the temple anymore. Come, be baptized, repent and be baptized and you can have eternal life. You don't need the temple. So they didn't like John's message. So they couldn't say he was from God because then they'd be endorsing his message and get rid of their job. But they also couldn't say that it, he had made all that up on his own because the people loved him. And they were afraid. They needed the people. They needed the energy of the people to get rid of Jesus. So they couldn't, so they were stuck. Jesus does this, you guys. Have you ever tried to outsmart or negotiate with God? Just, it just doesn't work. And since I told you, that kind of just let you in my mind a little and how I study, I'm going to show you exactly where my mind went as I read this. Now, again, this is the first time they've tried to trap him. They've been doing it since Mark chapter 2, where they started trying to trap him early on. They've had lots of different interactions. They're going to have three different more traps they try to lay for him mentally in uh, Mark chapter 12. This is what it reminds me of. Anybody ever seen the movie The Princess Bride? All right, so there's a clip in there where this guy, this little Sicilian, is trying to trap the hero, okay, with his mental outwit him. Watch the clip. This is what these chief elders remind me of. All right. Where is the poison? The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead. But it's so simple. All I have to do is divine from what I know of you. Are you the sort of man who would put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies? Now, a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given. I'm not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You made your decision then? <laughs> not remotely. Because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. And Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Wait till I get going! Where was I? Australia. Yes, Australia. And you must have suspected I would have known the powder's origin, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're just stalling now. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? 
You've beaten my giant, which means you're exceptionally strong. So you could have put the poison in your own goblet, trusting on your strength to save you, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you've also bested my Spaniard, which means you must have studied. And in studying, you must have learned that man is mortal, so you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're trying to trick me into giving away something. It won't work. It has worked. You've given everything away. I know where the poison is. Then make your choice. I will, and I choose. What in the world can that be? What? Where? I don't see anything. Oh, well, I, I could have sworn I saw something. I, no matter. <laughs> What's so funny? I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. First, let's drink. Me from my glass, and you from yours. guessed wrong. You only think I guessed wrong. That's what's so funny. I switched glasses when your back was turned. Ha <laughs> ha, you fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well-known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. All right. Why would a pastor spend three minutes of your valuable time showing you that clip? Because I want you to get this third application point. It is futile to try to outsmart, negotiate, or figure everything out that God has come up with. It just is. It says way back in Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways. My ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts are higher than ours. We can't understand it all. And I've spent a lot of time trying to logic or analyze my way through things. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why does, why, why, why? I don't, faith. Faith is the answer. There are just some things that you're not gonna be able to figure out because your mind isn't his mind. And we look like that little guy when we try to have those arguments with him. Now, he's a loving God and he will, he'll listen. But at some point, you've got to decide whether you want to follow him in faith. And if you do, your life will look radically different. All right, let's keep moving through. A couple more points, and we'll, we'll call it a day. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. And this parable is really powerful. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. So he set it up for success. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will surely respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. When, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill these tenants and give the vineyard to others. The parable is kind of the final straw with these elders of the temple. He's saying to everybody listening, including them, look, I have blessed you. God has blessed you with everything he has. 
And instead of giving back a portion, instead of treating it the way you should, instead of respecting it and bearing fruit, you have abused it and you have kept it off for yourself. And I've sent prophets to warn you and you've beaten them. I've sent other prophets and you've killed them. I've sent many signs and you've paid no attention. And now I'm sending my son and you will kill him as well. So I'm getting rid of the temple and I'm putting it somewhere else. It's an incredibly significant teaching in our faith. The understanding that the temple isn't out there anymore, it is here. And it is through Jesus that we have eternal life and salvation and forgiveness of sins. Um, what's, the, what's the takeaway from this? Well, are we living out what God requires of us given all that we've been blessed with? The cool thing is, as you go through Mark 11 and 12, he points out instead of the temple, like the way it was being handled by the chief priests and the elders, there is a right way to do gathering and to do church. And he lays it out in five different points. And in Mark eleven seventeen, he says, our house needs to be a place of prayer for all nations. In Mark eleven twenty five, 25, he says, our community has to be a forgiving one. In Mark 12, 17, he says, are we rendering to God what belongs to him? Mark 12, 17 no, I'm sorry, 1230, we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Mark 1231, and also do we love our neighbors? He's laying out what it should look like if you're gonna gather and do church. And the question, the application for us is, are we doing that? Are we living out church in this way? Are we living out community in this way? With love for God, love for others, forgiveness, sharing and giving back to God, and being a house of prayer for all nations. There's a lot here in Mark chapter 12. Not gonna go through it all. There's another section here about paying the imperial tax to Caesar. It's actually another attempt at the Pharisees to, to trap Jesus uh, with some kind of mind game. It's an important passage, though, if you are at all struggling with how do I be a patriot here in the United States and at the same time be a servant in the kingdom of God, um, there's, some, there's some really good commentary that would help you unpack that and understand that. Um, then in verse 18, he goes, the Sadducees show up. It's another group of people trying to do mind games and, and tricks on him. And they talk about uh, some crazy situation and scenario where there's a seven-time widow and uh, what happens with resurrection around that. He handles that. And then another teacher shows up and he asks him about the great commandment. And that's where Mark 12, 28 starts. That's pretty interesting, again, to think about in context because what he's saying is that instead of having to go make an animal sacrifice, what God requires of you is that you love him and you love others. Radical concept for these Sadducees, Pharisees, and chief priests to hear. Goes on through, uh, talks a little bit about being in the lineage of David and what that means. He warns against the teachers of the law. And then he ends here in Mark chapter 12, verse 41 with this section we're gonna talk about today. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. It's, a, it's an interesting conclusion given where we started, Mark 11. Contrasting these people who used the temple for their own gain with this woman who came to the temple to give sacrificially of what she had. And it leads to the last kind of application point for us. Like, are we giving to God and others sacrificially? We're blessed. 
We are blessed, you guys. We have a surplus in many areas in most of our lives. Are we giving sacrificially? Where it hurts a little bit. Second Corinthians says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Are we giving sacrificially? There's a lot of great points that we can pull out of this start to the last week of Jesus' life. Put the five kind of application questions on the screen, but I want you to think about it in this context. What would you do with the last week of your life if you had one to go? And I kind of like what Jesus is doing here. First thing he decides to do is he decides to go and confront the one major enemy that could hurt the people that he loves the most. The, the, the abuse of the temple elders and the leaders is I'm taking that on. I can tell you, if I had one week to go, first thing I would do is I would look around and I'd figure out what Yahoo was gonna try to take Christina once I was gone and I would go confront that dude. I'd spend at least a day on that. And then I'd say, who's gonna mess with my kids? And I'd spend some time on that because that's what you do. You protect what means something to you when time is running out. And then he takes the next step. Here's what I would probably do next. I would hope that I would be willing to then sit down with the people that mean something to me and just share what, what, what I thought was most important about life. And that's what Jesus does. He, sits, he says, listen, here's what's most important. Forget all the rest. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the saying is love your neighbor as yourself. And, and then maybe it would be cool to end it with a message to my kids about what really matters at the end of my life. You know, it's over. You know what? I'm not taking any possessions with me. Don't bury any of my cool collections or stuff or trophies in the casket with me. Just put me in the box and send me off because that stuff's God's anyway. Share with others like that widow did. That's a pretty good start to the last week of his life, and it's a pretty good example for us. What matters and what's important? Are we living out these truths that he's asking us to on the screen? Let's pray.